So as many of you know, we are studying through Paul's letter to the Ephesians, and we've been doing, uh, as I've called it, a series within a series, looking at the subject of marriage and family. And for the past several weeks, we've looked at the, uh, the issue of the marital relationship, and we come today to a consideration of the relationship between children and parents. And so here in Ephesians 6, verses 1 through 4, uh, let me read it to you. Paul says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you, and you may live long on the earth. And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. The biblical view of family, a father and a mother who are married to each other, and children, that's a biblical picture of a family. Uh, This picture has been relentlessly attacked in this country from the 1960s until today. Uh, Powerful forces have been at work to undermine the family unit. On the governmental level, it began with the no-fault divorce laws that were first introduced in California in 1969. From there, things have only gone from bad to worse. I'm not sure if you're aware of this or not, but currently... There are ongoing attempts to even do away with the terms father and mother. As a matter of fact, the State Department has decided to remove father and mother from the passport applications and replace them with parent one and parent two. So a statement on the State Department website noted, these improvements being made to provide are being made to provide a gender-neutral description of a child's parents and in recognition of different types of families. So the State Department feels that this is an improvement to the situation. And then, of course, uh, we are all aware of the huge push from the current administration and others in our government to uh, redefine the family by imposing same-sex marriage on the culture. So this is what is happening uh, with the idea of family in general throughout much of the Western world. This isn't limited to our experience here in the United States. This, of course, is very much the case in Europe and other places as well. But, But moving from that, marriage and family in general, we come to the apostles' instruction to the Christian family. Now, The reality is we can't do a whole lot about uh, what's happening with marriage out in the the larger uh, society. But what we can do is we can make sure that we are living according to God's instruction. We can make sure that we are living uh, according to God's standard for uh, marriage and family. So we can't... uh, affect the culture, I mean, you know, a little bit. We can can vote on things sometimes. We can 
uh, certainly pray. Uh, we can hopefully be a good example. But uh, the larger culture is just swept up in this uh, opposition, really, to God's picture of, of life in general and of uh, married life and family life uh, in particular. And so we need, though, to make sure that we are applying these things in our own homes. So here the apostle, he addresses first the children and then the parents. And so as we saw with the relationship between the husband and wife, we see that there is a divine order. And according to the biblical picture, children are to be obedient to their parents. And every culture that has made light of or dismissed this command has suffered dire consequences. And, and many of the problems that we face in our own society today are due to a, a neglect of these things or a, a refusal to uh, recognize this as the right way to do things. You know, many today in the culture have just absolute disdain for any instruction that comes from the Bible. I mean, if it comes from the Bible, forget it, people say. You know, I don't want to hear any of that. And so there's just a complete uh, rejection of the biblical prescription on how to live. But the more we reject the biblical prescription, the more trouble we have in our culture. I don't know that anybody's ever going to wake up and realize that, but that is truly the case. So here, looking specifically at the passage that we read, we start with children. Children, obey your parents. Children, obey your parents. And then Paul gives us reasons for that. There are practical reasons for children to obey their parents. And here he says, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. You know, believe it or not, there are things that are right, and there are things that are wrong. And when you do things right, you get a good outcome. When you do things wrong, you get a not so good outcome. And, and this is absolutely the case when it comes to the relationship between the parent and the child. An obedient child uh, enjoys life. An obedient child has a good life experience. Uh, a disobedient child does not because disobedience is wrong. It, it's not right. Now, again, um, to a large degree, our society has lost the concept of right and wrong, but according to the scriptures, there is a right and a wrong way to do things, and here, obedience to parents is the right thing to do. And then honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. So secondly, we see not only is it right, but it's the best thing. You see, God never gives us commandments to um, deprive us of good things. He gives us commandments so he can bestow those good things upon us. So being obedient to parents, it's not only right, but it's the best thing that it may be well with you. So Paul's here speaking to children, that it may be well with you. There's nothing more that a parent 
could want than that things would go well for their children. I mean, unless you're just a, a horrible parent, uh, this is what we want, right? As, as parents, we want things to go well for our children. We want them to grow up to be uh, healthy and, and you know, well-adjusted. Um, and we, we want them to have a good life. And the promise here is that if you follow God's uh, instruction, that will be the case, that it may be well with you. Whenever I said no to my children, it was with their best interest in mind. At least most of the time, that was the case. Uh, I would have to say that there probably were a few occasions when um, I really probably had my own best interest in mind. I just didn't want to, you know, whatever they were asking for, no, I'm not going to give you that. And, uh, but generally speaking, generally speaking, it was never to quench their fun. It, it, it wasn't to make their lives miserable. It was for their benefit and their protection that I would say no to my children. And, and most parents, that's the case. We are looking out for their best interests. I, I used to say to my kids, you know, listen. I was a child once. I know that's hard for you to believe, but I was a child. And I know about this stuff. When my kids were teenagers, hey, I was a teenager too. They just never believed that, you know, or for them it was like, oh yeah, dad, but back when you were a teenager, it was so much different. It's, uh, it's completely an irrelevant comparison. But I, I find actually that uh, things haven't changed all that much. There's a lot of similarities. But you know, the things that I would, I would um, prohibit them from doing, it was for their own, their own benefit. Many times they didn't see that. Many times they thought that it was just simply some dumb rule that dad had laid down. My oldest son, uh, one day, we saw him uh, going out into the backyard and he had a belt around his waist with, with probably five or six different knives uh, there stuck in the belt. You know, he had gotten the knives out of the kitchen drawers and he had a couple of his own uh, pocket knives and things and he had them all stuffed in his belt. And I said, where are you going? And we had a playhouse in our backyard. And he said, oh, I'm going to go jump off the roof of the playhouse onto the trampoline. <laughs> You're going to jump off the roof of the playhouse onto the trampoline with a belt full of knives around your waist. You know what? One of those knives might go right through your belly. Give me those knives. What is the matter with you? No, you can't do this. Oh, Dad, I can't believe it, man. You don't let me have any fun. No. I, I, look, I, I don't mind you having fun. I just don't want you to kill yourself in the process. But this is sometimes what happens, isn't it? So it is for your well-being that God commands you to obey your parents, that you may live long. How does obedience live to, or uh, how does obedience uh, translate into a long life. Well, think about it. The child who obeys will be protected from danger. Uh, he or she will experience less accidents and harm. I mean, again, how many times when your children were small, maybe some of you have, uh, you know, your children are all grown up, but how many times, uh, 
you know, could you see things that were, that were going to happen? They couldn't see it. But you know, man, if they do that, we're going we're gonna to end up at urgent care. We're going to end up at the emergency ward because this is going to result in some uh, sort of a disastrous thing. So we would tell them no, but it was to protect them from danger. And the child who is obedient then doesn't have those kinds of experiences. An obedient child will be spared the bad habits and bad friends that tend to ruin and shorten life. A child who's perpetually disobedient, disobedient to a parent, will eventually become disobedient in society. You know, it's interesting, the fifth commandment is this commandment here that Paul's quoting, uh, children, honor your father and your mother. And it's a, if you look at it in the, um, where it's situated, it's the fifth commandment. It's actually the transitional commandment from man's obligation to God uh, to his obligation to his fellow man. And the reason why it's there as the fifth commandment, the reason why it's the transitional commandment is because the parent, to a large degree, was in the place of God. So when, when God said for the, for the children to honor their parents, as they did honor their parents, it was at the same time honoring to God. So if you're dishonorable toward your parents, then you're dishonoring God. If you disobey your parents habitually, if you develop this kind of a pattern, you will grow up in life and you will disobey all authority and especially ultimately God's authority. So... Children who obey are more likely to develop healthy patterns, whereas a disobedient child will likely develop harmful patterns. The scriptures repeat this in several places. Proverbs 4.10 says, listen, my son, accept what I say, and the years of your life will be many. And then in Proverbs 10.27, the fear of the Lord adds length to life, but the years of the wicked are cut short. How many times has it been the case that uh, another uh, child has come into a person's life and influenced them for bad, influenced them toward evil, and ended up leading them astray and getting them into all kinds of trouble? So again, the parent is watching out for the well-being of the child with the, with the deep desire that your children will do well. You know, for me personally, this to me is the most important thing in the world. The most important thing to me is that my children know God, that they walk with God, that they, they have a relationship with him, that they, that they have a, a good life, a blessed life. That, that's primarily what I care about. And I think that, of course, that would be the case with you as well. That's what we want as parents for our children. Sometimes children just... They don't get that. So, a few questions arise. Is there ever a time when children don't have to obey their parents? Um, yes. When the children become adults, they no longer have to obey their parents. Now, I don't know who came up with the bright idea for kids to become adults at 18, but, uh, <laughs> and I can't tell you how many times I heard, hey, I'm 18. So what? That means nothing to me. But in the, in the mind of the state, you know, you are now an adult, so 
Uh, but the reality is, of course, when a child reaches adulthood, they no longer are obligated by this uh, command here of Paul's, but even as adults, they are to honor their parents. So you might not be living in a, a relationship with your parents as an adult, of course you shouldn't, where you know, you're calling up your mom and dad, hey, can I do this? You don't, you don't have to do that, you don't wanna do that. But you do want to show them honor which means to love, to reverence, to regard them highly, to show them respect and consideration. So just because you become an adult doesn't mean you completely uh, disassociate yourself from your relationship with your parents or their influence over your lives. Um, of course, we would all look to our parents to some degree for that good influence, and we would honor them and respect their um, views on things. Secondly, children would not be obligated to obey parents if the parents were prohibiting them from obeying and serving God. So this would be one exception where there is, uh, if, if a parent, and, and unbelievably, there are times when this does happen, a parent will be uh, trying to encourage the child toward some sort of evil type of a practice. This, this does happen, sadly. And there, the child would be, the responsibility there would be uh, to obey God. Now, a question also that comes up is, what about a non-believing parent? Somebody says, well, you know, my parents aren't Christians. Uh, what about that? I mean, could I, could I really obey them if they're not Christians? Well, yes, it's your obedience and your honoring of them that will at times be the greatest witness to them of the reality of Jesus Christ. So just because they're not believers doesn't mean that we, we no longer have to obey them. And God quite often will use that obedience. You know, you have a child, let's say maybe a teenager who has been rebellious, who has been in all kinds of trouble and just an absolute pain to the parent, but then they get saved and their life begins to change and they start to be compliant. They start to be obedient. The parent looks on and says, wow, this is amazing what's happened. Many parents have been led to Christ by the transformation in the lives of their children as they went from being disrespectful and rebellious to being respectful and obedient. Um, and that's the picture that we have here. So those are the commands to children. Now, Paul, from there, he moves on and he says, and you fathers... You fathers, it's interesting that Paul zeroes in on the father here. In our society, to a large degree, we, we sort of um, looked to the mothers to be the, the primary influence on the children. Of course, dad goes off to work and um, all of that. And, and then he's too tired when he comes home, so he doesn't engage too much with the kids. And, you know, that, that child rearing thing is left up to the mothers. Well, the biblical picture is that it's a joint venture. We're, we're in this together, but the biblical picture puts an emphasis on the father. We see it right here. Paul could have said fathers and mothers, and of course, previously he said parents, so he was including both, but he's talking specifically to fathers here. God expects men to be thoroughly engaged in the bringing up of their children. That's the reality. We're not to abdicate that. We're not to just 
relegate that to, well, that's the wife's job. And if we do that, and depending on the degree that the father neglects the family, uh, there will be consequences. The breakdown of the family in our culture is largely due to the failure of fathers to be fathers. I read a very excellent article last night uh, written by a man, a pastor named uh, Vadi Bakum. And Vadi is an African-American pastor who grew up in South Central LA. He now pastors in Texas. And he was asked to weigh in on the Ferguson situation and, you know, the protest and the riots and these different things. And um, I thought what he said was, was really applicable here. He said, the underlying malady that gives rise to the plague of violence and criminality in the black community is immorality and fatherlessness. We know that fatherlessness is the number one indicator of future violence, dropout rates, out-of-wedlock births, future incarceration. And in the black community, more than 70% of all children are born out of wedlock. Fatherlessness is the bane of the black community. Now, the reality is, that's true, but fatherlessness is the bane of every community. Whether it's the black community or the Hispanic community or the white community, wherever you find an absentee father, wherever you find a single parent home with, with the mother doing her best and the dad is absent, even if the dad lives in the home, if he's just completely disengaged, this is going to be problematic for children as they grow. The dad is there in the home to set the pace, to... to to be the model, to show, especially the sons, but the daughters as well. It's not just a, a matter of fathers and sons, it's a matter of fathers and daughters. Now, when Paul outlines how parents um, should behave toward their children, here he says, fathers do not provoke, uh, it's not the exercise, but the restraint of their authority that he urges upon them. The picture he paints of fathers as self-controlled, gentle, patient educators of their children is, <coughs> excuse me, is in stark contrast to the norm of his day. Now, Paul, of course, wrote this in the context of the Roman Empire. Commentator William Barclay described the typical Roman household. A Roman father had absolute power over his family. He could sell them as slaves. He could make them work in the fields, even in chains. He could take the law into his own hands, for the law was in his own hands, and punish as he liked. He could even inflict the death penalty on his child. Completely different was the Christian father. So this is the contrast that Paul is making. So Paul's writing to men who have become Christians who probably had previously been more like the typical Roman father, and he's saying it's, it's a different situation now. Fathers do not provoke. That was apparently the, the mode of operation of the, the Roman father, but he says parents uh, or fathers do not provoke your children to wrath. So the picture of the Christian father was to be completely different the overarching theme of Ephesians, maybe you remember, we've talked about this, is that through Christ's reconciling work, there is now one multinational, multicultural family of God. 
And so what Paul is saying here is human fathers are to care for their families as God cares for his family. Earlier in Ephesians, Paul mentioned the fact that all of the fathers on earth, uh, they take their name from the heavenly father. The tragedy is although we take our title from the heavenly father, most fathers on earth do not, um, they do not emulate the heavenly father. But that's what Paul says we are called to do. Now, in today's society, you often find parents at one extreme or the other. You find, uh, in dealing with their children, you find sometimes that parents are, are severely oppressive on the one hand, or you find that they are extremely permissive on the other. The oppressive parent is harsh and unreasonably demanding. This will... This will break the spirit of a child, a harsh attitude and and an unreasonable demand. You know, some parents put these demands on their children. They they want their children to be uh, head and shoulders above every other child. They want them to get better grades. They want them to do better in sports. And their, but their demands are unreasonable. This is, uh, this is an oppressive approach to uh, parenting. Emotionally, verbally, and sometimes even physically, uh, they will be abusive. They are unwilling to show approval or affection. This is wrong. This, this kind of oppressive approach is a wrong approach, but, but equally wrong is the permissive approach. The permissive parent is unwilling to be a parent. Either they are... Uh, preoccupied with other things or wanting to be liked by the children to the extent that they refuse to discipline them lest they fall out of favor. You know, you see sometimes today, you know, you see some cases today where you can't tell the parent from the child. Sometimes you can't tell the parent from the child even by the way they look or dress. And it's especially true in Orange County. Um, <laughs> But you can't, see, you can't figure out who is who by the way they treat each other. And we see this stuff all the time. So it's this permissive approach here where really the reality is the parent just has no real interest in the life of the child. They're, they're just way too into themselves. They're way too preoccupied with their own thing. You know, parenting is a sacrificial experience. You have to kind of forget yourself for some time and invest in somebody else. Some have embraced a humanistic view of raising children that says the child knows what's best and should be allowed to do whatever comes natural or whatever it wants to do. And you find this in extremely liberal context where people just say, well, you know, I'd never tell my child to do anything. I'd never impose my opinion on them or will they, they just figure it out as they go. That is absolutely horrific parenting. Both of these positions are unbiblical and equally wrong. But listen, the opposite of wrong discipline is is not no discipline. It's right discipline. And the Bible gives us the balance. That's the beautiful thing about the scriptures. They give us a beautiful balance. And here Paul gives us 
in the passage, he gives us both things that we are to avoid doing as well as things we are to do. So what are we to avoid doing? Do not provoke your children. Fathers, do not provoke your children means do not irritate or frustrate your children so they become angry. Do not exasperate them to resentment. We have to realize that children are fragile. You know, sometimes we think, well, it's, it's my job to toughen this 16-month-old baby up, you know. <laughs> What's the matter with you, kid? What are you crying about? You're a whole year and a half old now. We gotta toughen this kid up. What kind of mentality is that? It's like caveman mentality, it's ridiculous. Children are fragile, and we need to, to keep that in mind. And so we, we get this beautiful balance. We're not to provoke them, to irritate or frustrate them, or to exasperate them to resentment. So since that's the case, there are a few things that we should never do. Number one, we should never be violent. Fathers should never be violent. Mothers should never be violent. Parents should never be violent toward their children. Um, of course, we all have our moments where we can lose our temper and we can become frustrated and, and all of that, but we should never, never discipline in violence. We should never strike out. Uh, we should never strike our, our children in, in any kind of a violent sort of a rage. And, you know, in the... In, in the experience of the child, it just becomes so hypocritical because you're, you're trying to correct them because they've got a bad attitude or whatever, but you're, you're displaying that same kind of a thing in your attempt to correct. So we should never be violent toward our children. We should not be capricious, meaning that we, we should not be unpredictable. We should not always be changing the rules. We should not always be moving the borders. There is nothing more confusing and frustrating to a child than the kind of parent whose moods and actions can never be predicted, whose condition is always uncertain, who one day in a good mood is indulgent and allows the child almost anything, but who the next day flares up into a rage if the child hardly does anything at all. A capricious parent will exasperate a child. So we, we have to have stability in our uh, dealings with our children. We should not be unreasonable or unwilling to listen. How many times has that been the case where, uh, you know, you've got a situation, you walk into it and you see your kids are, I don't know, maybe they're in a fight or something and um, they want to tell you the story, but nope, doesn't matter. I'm just going to you know, discipline you. And that kind of um, unreasonableness, that kind of unwillingness to just stop and listen to what they have to say, these are the kinds of things that can um, provoke them, that can exasperate them. Uh, we shouldn't discipline too severely. The punishment in, should, should fit the crime. And sometimes we just randomly throw out a punishment and it's when you if you were to stop and think about it you think well that that is a little bit extreme isn't it so we need to be careful not to 
go to extremes. We need to have, again, a balance. You should never use obscene or demeaning language. Obscene or demeaning language. I didn't grow up in a Christian home. I've mentioned that before. Uh, Nor did I know any Christian families. And I have been cussed at, and I've seen that with, you know, people I grew up with or friends, the way, you know, parents speak demeaningly and all of that. And, And that's the kind of thing that just, it hurts deep in the heart of a child. And these are the kinds of wounds that stick with people for a long time. So we should never use obscene or demeaning language toward your child. I remember one time years ago, I was in a, I was in some sort of a shop and there was a guy in there with his kid and boy, the, the way he spoke to his child, I mean, it, to me, it was like almost enough just to call the social services and say, just get this kid away from this guy just because of the way he speaks to his child. I don't know if he physically abused the child or not, but the way he spoke to him was just absolutely uh, unacceptable. So these are the negatives, but then Paul says... Raise them in the training and in the instruction of the Lord. So now we come to the positive side. Raise them in the training and the instruction of the Lord. Or raise them in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. The word nurture is the word translated training here. And if you remember, it sounds similar to another word we looked at last time, the word nourish. And that's because it's the same word. It's the same Greek word, and it was used previously in the fifth chapter in reference to a husband's treatment of his wife. He is to nourish his wife, loving his wife as he loves himself, nourishes and cherishes himself. So it's the same word. So bringing them up, and the idea here is that you would fondly cherish your children, that you would deal gently with them. Because again, children are fragile creatures and they need to be dealt with in tenderness and the security of love. So how do we practically apply instructing them in the Lord? I'll give you just a few things. Number one, teach your children that God loves them. And listen, you're going to teach them that much more effectively if you show them. Not simply telling them, but, but showing them by your love for them that God loves them. But, but teach children that God loves them. It's so easy for us to focus on the negative. And sometimes even in a Christian environment, we would focus on the negative. Oh, you're such a little sinner. Oh, God's going to get you for that. (laughs) But you know, that stuff sticks in the mind of a child. And so they start to think of God more as a, a judge than as a father. More as a judge who's going to punish them rather than a father who loves them and is gentle toward them and compassionate toward them. So it's our job as we're uh, instructing them in the Lord, we're to instruct them on the love of God. Secondly, we are to teach them to love the things of God, the word of God. But like I said a moment ago, I'm, I'm going to effectively do that 
if I have that myself. I can't pass on a love for the things of God and the truth of God, the word of God, if I don't have it in my own heart. If I don't have it in my own heart, then it's just, it's just rules. And it's seen as that. So we read the Bible. We study the Bible. We read things that help us to know God better. And you know, we, we subject ourselves to things that are going to help us grow. But we do it all with an attitude of, of uh, you know, this is something we get to do. It's not something that we've got to do. It's not something that we have to do. Church, as we go to church together as families, we get to go to church. It's not that we, we've got to go. But we teach them to love the things of God, the word of God. We need to teach them about the grace of God. And this is, again, the way we do that is we be gracious. You know, if you were to survey, I know this is true because I see it all the time, if you were to survey teenagers who have grown up in Christian homes and, and perhaps, let's say, also go, go to Christian schools, the vast majority, their idea of God is much more legal than it is grace-oriented. Just they, I, I think in some ways, we unintentionally, but, but in actuality, we have raised our kids more... Uh, to, with more of a moralistic approach than a gospel approach. The moralistic approach is, you know, this is, these are the things you need to do. And, and we, we subtly, I don't think we intentionally do it, but we subtly communicate to them that everything is about keeping rules. And if you're a good Christian, you're going to keep all these rules. And if you don't keep these rules, you're not a good Christian. And that's kind of the, the totality of the Christian life. It's just make sure you're... you're not doing all of these things and you, you are doing these things. But where's grace in that picture? It's not there. It's, it's, a, it's a, a, a legal sort of a understanding of the faith, but we need to be teaching them about God's grace. We need to be teaching them about, as I said earlier, how much God loves them, but you know that God forgives them when they fail. That God knows that they're sinners, but he still loves them anyway. And he's got plenty of grace to cover up those sins and they can, they can come to him. And instead of feeling like they're failing all the time and instead of feeling like God is angry with them most of the time, which many of them do. And subsequently at times they just give up. It's like, I can't please God. I'm just, I'm just gonna go do something else. I think sometimes it's rooted in a failure uh, for us or from us to pass on God's grace. So we need to be gracious. That's one of the ways to pass on God's grace. And as you're gracious, make sure you express that this is how God is. Then also, we are to teach them that God has given us all things richly to enjoy. See, again, because a lot of times, what Christianity is perceived as is that God is preventing us from enjoying most things. That's, that's the way it's looked at, right? Oh, man, my family's Christian. My parents are Christians, which means that I can't do this and I can't do that. And, and we, we give that impression. The Bible says God has given us richly all things to enjoy. We have this big, beautiful world with all kinds of wonderful aspects to it that aren't 
sinful or, or tainted by sin, we can enjoy those things. We can enjoy life. We teach them that. And then we teach them that to love God is to obey God and their parents and that his commandments are not burdensome, but rather they are a blessing. We teach our kids that obedience brings a blessing. The Bible teaches that. When we fail, God's there with his grace to forgive us and to get us going again. But he calls us to obedience, but the obedience is not a burden. It's a blessing. I know that as I just live the way God wants me to live, there's a blessing in that. Now, in closing, as I thought about this message, I asked myself this question. What would I do differently today? Having raised my children, what, as I look back, what would I do differently than I did? And I decided absolutely nothing. I was the perfect parent and... Uh, <laughs> And if they heard me say that, <laughs> there would be war. <laughs> no, I thought of some things. Number one, I would pray for my kids more than I did. I would pray more for them. I prayed for them, of course I did, because I'm a Christian and I'm their dad and I prayed for them. But as I look back... I didn't pray for them with the fervency that I, I now know that I should have. Because you know what I did? I made the mistaken assumption that because we were Christians and I raised them in the faith that everything was going to be fine. They would never be tempted to get off into this or get involved in any trouble or anything like that. So I, I just assumed that... Everything would always go well, so I never prayed for them with the kind of focus or intentionality that I do today. I pray for them much, in a much more focused manner today than I did even when they were children, but I look back and I think, that was a mistake, because I didn't know what was coming down the road. I didn't know the temptations that they were going to face. I didn't know the challenges and the difficulties. I just assumed that, oh, they're not going to have any of that, because we taught them not to do stuff like that but I was mistaken. And so I look back and I think, wow, if I had to do it over again, I would pray much more. I would pray more specifically. I would pray for them daily. I would pray for their futures. I would pray for their spouses. I would pray for their, their life as they would go into teenagehood and adulthood. I would pray more for my kids. Secondly, I would be less restrictive with them. I would be less restrictive. I look back and I think, you know, there were times that it was just, now that I can see from a different perspective, I could just see, God, what, what was I thinking back then? I was so restrictive at times. You can't watch this. You can't listen to that. You can't read this or that. You can't wear this or that. And, and I look back and think, why was I like that? And, and some of these things were the kinds of things that brought frustration and exasperation. I'll never forget when my, my daughter, my oldest daughter was 15. We were living in England at the time. And we were going somewhere. I don't even know where we were going. But she came out and got into the car. It was probably February. Uh, it was cold, really cold outside. And she got into the car and she had these, these sandal type shoes on. Um, you know, high heeled with uh, open toes and all of that. And I looked at her and I go, what? you know, it's freezing outside. 
Your toes are gonna freeze off. What are you doing with these sandals on? This is ridiculous. Go in the house and change them. I don't wanna change them. I like these shoes. Well, I said, get in the house and change them. You're not gonna go anywhere with those sandals on. So we got in this massive fight about this. I look back today and think, what was I thinking? I should have just said, look, if you wanna freeze your toes off, that's your business, not mine. Let's go. But no, I'm gonna... I'm going to force it. There's no way. You're not going to do that. And I, and I look back and I think of some of, the, some of the restrictions that I put on my kids. Oh, no, you're not going to, you can't go do that or you can't watch this. And I, I think in many ways I, it was over the top. And I think um, as I look back on it, I, I would do that differently. And then thirdly, I would try to be a better listener and give fewer lectures and also give more room for the Spirit to work in their lives. I was really good at lecturing my kids. And you know, the minute the lecture would start, the eyes would roll, you could just see it all. It's like, okay. And they go, okay, here we go again. Here's dad's lecture number 350 on this particular thing. So I wasn't listening to what they had felt or had to say. It's like, no, 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 you listen because I'm the dad and I know everything. And, uh, you know, I didn't think that necessarily, but I think sometimes I behaved like that. So fewer lectures, better listener, just listening. Now, I have learned these things, but I wish I would have learned them earlier. And of course, now my kids just tell me, get lost <laughs> if, I, if I go into lecture mode with them or whatever. But they do it respectfully. They're honoring me while they do it. But the thing that, the thing, here's the thing though. The thing is, we have to give room for the spirit to work in the lives of our kids. Now, we all want our kids to know Jesus. We all want them to follow the Lord. But you know that you can actually hinder that. You can be trying to do it, and actually you can be doing things that are counterproductive to that. If you are the one who's trying to bring the conviction, you are the one who's setting up the standard, you are the one that is enforcing this and imposing that, instead of allowing the Spirit to work in their lives. There's a certain point, and I'm thinking more about you know, your kids as they get into the teen years now. I mean, obviously, the younger they are, they're, they're compliant, and you, they need those, those very clear guidelines and so forth. But as they get into the teen years, this is where we have to give more room for the Spirit to work in their lives. Recognize, you know, God's got to do this in their heart. Me laying down more rules is not going to help them really coming to a, a, a real deep faith in Christ. God, God's got to do something here. I, I think of the story, Pastor Chuck used to tell it often, about the, the mother of Augustine. Augustine became a, one of the great voices in the early church, one of the great um, theologians of all time. And Augustine was not a believer. His mother had become a Christian, and he informed her at a certain point that he was going to Rome. He was moving to Rome. They lived in North Africa. And this was the worst possible thing in his mother's mind. 
Oh no, Rome. Rome is the epicenter of paganism. This is, this is horrible news. Oh, my son, please do not go to Rome. That, that is the worst idea. And she just saw this as uh, it, it was certain doom and destruction in her mind for Augustine to go to Rome. But he was an adult, so he went. And guess what happened to him in Rome? He met Christ, became a Christian, became one of the great influential leaders of, of, in the whole history of the church. So again, my point is sometimes we look at things and we think, no, no, uh, no, they can't do this. And oh, I don't want them to do that. And, but these are the things that God's going to use. And we have got to give room for the spirit of God to work. We have to remember that at the end of the day, every single human being has to make their own choice to follow Christ. We can lay a foundation and we can do the best we can to help them along the way, but at the end, we can't make that decision for them. So we've got to know when to step back, not to lecture, listen, pray, and then trust God with the outcome. And you know what? God is faithful. I thank God for his faithfulness. I have four grown kids. They're all following Christ. And it's not because Cheryl and I were perfect parents. It's not because we did everything right. I was thinking about having them up here this morning to tell you about growing up in our home, but it would have been too humiliating for me, so we passed on that. But it's by God's grace, and so here's the final word. In all you're dealing with your children, just remember God's dealing with you. He's been so gracious to you. He's been so patient, hasn't he? He's been so long-suffering with us, that's the way we want to be with our kids.